0: For legislation specifically, there are very few bites at the apple. And that's been true for a while. But if you think about the legislative framework that underpins the internet in the U.S., at least a lot of it is very old. The statute that governs government access to stored communications was passed in 1986. Just think about what stored communications looked like then compared to what they look like now. And literally that's the law that government agents are using to explain whether they need to get access to your emails or not.
1: This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminary.fm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an
2: integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Alyssa Cooper, Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for Technology Policy and a Fellow at Cisco Systems. She is also currently a board member of the TOR project. Alyssa was Chair of the Internet Engineering Task Force, IETF, an organization that develops and promotes voluntary open internet standards from 2017 to 2021. She previously served as Chief Computer Scientist at the Center for Democracy and Technology.
1: Our conversation centers around the internet. What is the nature of the internet? Why are technology standards important? And how do standards influence the internet? How are decisions on standards for the internet made? We also discuss policy and regulation of the internet, emerging technologies, as well as digital privacy. Welcome, Alyssa. We are extremely glad to have you here talk about internet and things around the internet. Before we go further deep into details, how do you define internet? And what does it mean to you?
0: I would say the internet is a global network of networks that allows for the exchange of any kind of digital information. And it's built on top of open standards. So you can contrast this with other kinds of networks insofar as you have lots of disparate different kinds of networks. You might be using Ethernet or fiber. I might be using Wi-Fi. All of those things can be connected through a common set of communications protocols and standards that allows anybody anywhere in the world to exchange information. So that's my short definition of the internet. And it's, I think it's meaningful because it's not purpose-built, it's general purpose. So it's not like the phone network. The phone network was really built for you to make voice calls. And we've tried to make it do other things with limited success, but the internet is very general purpose. It's global in nature. It was not designed to meet the needs of any one country or one region. It was designed to connect people across regions and countries and to allow anybody at the endpoints to create new inventions and be able to reach the entire world with those inventions. It's, it's pretty special and unique, I think.
2: And, and do you recall, I guess, your first interaction with the internet itself when you're maybe a, a, a kid, you know, playing around with computers and stuff? Do you have any early memory around just an aha moment of what the internet is and could be?
0: Yeah, I think for a lot of people who are, I was growing up in the 80s, my my first memory of the internet was that like, Super harsh, loud noise that your modem makes when connecting. Um, so I will always associate that with with the early days of the internet. Of course, the internet had already been around for a while at that point, but that was kind of my introduction into it. My dad was really thought he he thought he was on the cutting edge. He still thinks he's on the cutting edge. He always wanted to be there. We were early adopters of the online service Prodigy, which was you know before AOL it was kind of in the in the CompuServe time, but we were prodigy members and I got my own account. I mean, I was a little kid, but I got my own account and it was long before parental controls or anything like that. They had no idea what I was doing. I was really into gymnastics when I was a child and and a young adult. I was a very serious gymnast. And so I found these bulletin boards where people were talking about gymnastics and I loved it. I was like, I didn't know who these people were, but they had strong opinions about who was the best Romanian or Chinese gymnast that year. And we would just argue about gymnastics on the internet. So that was kind of my very earliest experience with it. And, and I liked it. I thought
2: it was cool. That's a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that. And just kind of sketching out a little bit for your thoughts on this stuff. What's your view, if any, on how software and specifically the internet can be used to affect positive change?
0: So I think what continues to be revolutionary about the internet is the ability to connect people. And now at this point, it sounds so trite. And there's all these big companies who say that, literally use those exact words. But I think as society evolves, we continue to find new ways to do that on the internet, even in the pandemic, right? The fact that people are cut off from each other physically, but they're able to see each other's faces that was a new widespread form of communication that we didn't have even 10 years ago at the same scale, right? So I think that being able to form those bonds and make those connections with people you know, or people who you you would will never meet in person, I think a force for positive change, it's also a force for negative change. And that's, I think, become pretty clear that losing other forms of connection in and having only kind of online social network connection is creating problems, but that doesn't negate the positive effects that it also has. And then I think the other, the other really broad based positive change that the internet has wrought is just the dissemination of information and education and the democratization of that process, such that you want to go learn about morning doves because you're, <laughs> this happened to me, like my six-year-old came home and knew more about morning doves than I did because they were studying birds in school. It's so simple to go learn everything that anyone in the world knows about morning doves. You can go read the scientific papers and everything, right? It's at your fingertips. And that's true on basically any topic. Now, again, there's a negative side there, which is that the sorting and sifting of that information and the funneling of it and the filtering of it is ad hoc and can lead you down rabbit holes that you shouldn't have gone down. But nevertheless, that doesn't erase that really positive aspect that when you need more information, you can go find it. And that there's just a much wider availability than there ever has been before in
1: human history. Something you mentioned that internet is built on open standards and Definitely would love to go deeper into it. What are these standards and why are they important?
0: You can think of a standard as like an agreement. And I'll just put this in in the context of computing because it's actually pretty simple to understand. I'm sitting here on my laptop. I have my web browser open. Let's say I'm using the Firefox browser. So it's produced by the Mozilla Corporation. And I want to go visit the local D.C. government website, which is produced by the D.C. government. I live in Washington, D.C. That website is produced by an entity that has nothing to do with Mozilla or Firefox. They don't understand anything about what Mozilla or Firefox knows. But those two things can communicate. My web browser can talk to that website because of open standards. Open standards are like the language that we use to get products and services that are built entirely separate from each other to be able to communicate and interoperate. And the entire internet is built on literally thousands of these open standards. So when you type HTTP into your browser window, that HTTP is an acronym for an open standard that is used to exchange information on the web. It's the same thing for email. It's the same thing for voice and video that we are using to conduct this interview. It's the same for how we route the information around the internet. As I said, it's a network of networks. It's not all run by one company. There's tens of thousands of different networks on the internet, all run by different parties. And the reason that they can exchange traffic is because their equipment all speaks this same language. They all use these same open standards to exchange information. And so that's a really key feature of the internet. All of the interfaces are built on these open standards. And that means that any new person, individual company comes along and says, hey, I want to start a new video streaming service. They don't have to ask anybody for the secret keys. They don't have to be in inside the cabal. They can just look and say, oh, okay, if it uses HTTP, if it uses this, that, and the other standards, I know that anybody with a web browser will be able to watch my videos. And that's really the, the crux of why the internet is such an engine for innovation.
1: And is there a connection of standards in general with Technology, if we just take a step back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You see the same phenomenon in all aspects of technology. So Again, to go to things that are adjacent, sort of internet adjacent, right? We have, as I was talking about, like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, you have standards for how the chips are designed in your phone or in your car, and then you can continue to extrapolate from there, right? There's environmental standards and standards for business processes. So once you start looking at a particular technology area, then you'll start to see, you, you can always find some set of standards that are relevant to that technology area. But as I said, in some cases, they're much more central than others. The example of the internet is the internet wouldn't exist without the standards. In other cases, maybe you start with proprietary technologies. You start with a company or a group of companies that really owns all the intellectual property related to that area of technology. And then eventually later, they might decide, oh, it would be useful for us to standardize some of this so we can have more market entry or something like that. So they don't all start from the basis of open
1: standards, but the internet definitely does. Is it by design that internet has more open, centralized standards or it was more of a happenstance, that's how it developed?
0: No, it was absolutely by design. So if we go back to when the early designs were starting, late 60s into the 70s, as I said before, we, we had the phone network and we, we kind of knew what the phone network could do. And the phone network was not built really on these open standards. It's much more of a closed system where the, the entities operating the networks had a lot more control over what was going to happen on those networks. And the design goal of the internet was specifically to be different from that, was to allow for this entry and connection from any network that could speak the protocols, speak the standards. From the very beginning with the internet protocol IP, which is at the cornerstone of the technology stack for the internet, IP was an open published standard. And the original goal was actually to connect government offices and government networks together. That was the the genesis of the internet in the beginning. And they really wanted to be able to have any of those interconnect. And so they published these standards to make it easier for any of those offices or networks to be able to get onto the network.
2: What's the best way to think about an open standard versus something that's standard, or I guess not open? How do you think about the notion of openness for a standard, breaking down the concept of sort of technology standards a bit further.
0: So you can think about, if you want to think about a closed version, you can imagine a single company that decides what the interface is going to look like between two components in their area of technology. Let's think about my printer. Okay. My printer, not to hate on the, the printing industry, I'm sure there's lots of wonderful innovation happening in printing, but I don't know that much about that. So I'll, I'll use it as an example. My printer has printer cartridges, right? Are they all the same? Does every printer use the same printer cartridges? No, they do not. We all know this pain very well, right? When you get a new printer, if you had like a whole, you know, stack of printer cartridges that you were using from your old printer, they are useless. You can't take the old ones and put them into the new printer. And whatever your printer company wants to charge you for these very purpose-specific cartridges that's what you're going to pay because you don't really have another choice. There's an interface between the printer and the cartridge, and that's normally where you would define the standard. In the case of this theoretical printing company, this is a closed standard. They decided on their own what that interface was going to look like so that the cartridge knows what to do when it's inside the printer. That's a version of a closed standard. An open standard would be in the same context. If you... Had a forum where all different kinds of printer companies and printer cartridge companies would come and say, "Okay, our printers generally all work the same way. Can we write down what it would mean for all the things that a cartridge needs to know about a printer and vice versa, such that Acme Company could build cartridges that fit into Beta printer?" And they would go around and trying to suss out what is the set of things that the printers and the cartridges need to know, and then they would at the end they would publish it. They would like a publish like a written document that specifies all of these things, and it could be a long document. Some internet standards are hundreds of pages long. But then anybody who wanted to build cartridges or printers would have this at the ready, and they could even do like a certification that says, "Yes, we use standardized cartridges in our printers." And then you'd have interoperability. So if you bought Acme cartridges, you could put them in your Beta printer, or vice versa. So that's kind of the difference between closed and open. And that open model is pretty much the The only one that flies when it comes to the core networking of the internet. Like, how do we exchange the traffic? How do we route it? How do we make sure that it doesn't create a lot of congestion on the network? Those kinds of things.
2: And and I guess just briefly on why they are are important, one lens you could take to that is coordination failure. You want to avoid coordination failure and you want stakeholders to coordinate as much as possible because that typically yields some benefit. Just maybe, in on a little bit sort of the importance of standards. What if there were no standards at all? That's the one hypothetical to entertain.
0: Yeah, I think if there were no standards at all, you would just end up with these islands. So you would have lots of separate, disparate networking technologies that don't talk to each other. I don't know what a good analogy is for this. Maybe you can think about payment terminals. There's a lot of churn around this right now. When you go to a drugstore and you want to pay for something, you used to have to put your card in. And now sometimes if you have the right kind of card, you can just sort of wave it, or you might be able to use your phone. But there's still, there's a lot of movement here whereby you have all these separate systems. You never used to be able to just wave your phone at a payment terminal because your phone speaks a bunch of networking protocols and that terminal speaks a bunch of different ones and they don't understand each other. So I think if you didn't have standards, You would have a lot of that siloed experiences. You would need a different set of different software and different services and different devices to move from context to context where nothing was interoperable. And that's, from my perspective, really undesirable.
2: (laughs) We've touched on bits and pieces of this, but we'd just love to talk a little bit more about the role of technical standards in shaping and building the internet broadly. How do you think about the taxonomy or structure of standards and our understanding from afar, far as that the IETF is, is fairly important.
0: To grasp the taxonomy, it's useful to think about things in layers. So network engineers love their layers. We like think about things as stacks. I think a lot of people use this word stack, not with no context, but I think the fact that people call it a stack actually comes from this mental model of things being layered. When we think about the layered model for the internet, At the lowest layer you have physical connection. So I'm actually stringing a wire between two devices in order for them to be able to communicate, right? So this can be coaxial cable, it can be fiber optic cable, it can be a radio wave, but it's some physical medium. And then at the next layer up, we have what we call the link layer, which allows you to make one connection. Whether I have coaxial cable or fiber or wireless, I need to be able to format the data such that it can make it from my computer to my wireless access point or to whatever the very next hop is on the network. But from that perspective, there's only two devices on the network. We just need to make one connection, but that's not good enough for the internet. So then we go up another layer, which is what very confusingly is usually called the network layer, and this is what creates global connectivity. So now we have standards and protocols that can reach from one end of the internet to the other. And this is a layer where internet protocol sits. And I'll answer your question about important protocols. Internet protocol is the most important one. So this is in the network layer. And then if you go up again, we come to the trans- what we call the transport layer, which is where we create standards that help us reduce congestion on the network, that optimize performance so that you don't, you're not sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting for your website to load, but where we make those connections a lot snappier. Those kinds of things happen at the transport layer. And then above that, we have the sort of the application layers where we start to define things. What is the web? What is email? What is voice? What is video? And what standards do we need to do those things? If you think about it from a standards perspective, that's the internet stack. And then companies who build services and and offer products build on top of that uh, service like YouTube or Netflix, they are built on top of this internetworking stack. If we look at the whole thing, you have standards organizations that are creating these standardized protocols and interfaces at every layer, right? At the physical layer, you have cable labs, you have lots of different optical fiber associations, and they're literally standardizing like if I wanted to connect two things via a cable, how do I do that? That's the kind of interface that they're defining. You have ones at the link layer. Ethernet is a good example. Ethernet is a standardized protocol for making a single connection on a network. As I said, the network layer is where we start to get into the Internet Engineering Task Force. So, the Internet Engineering Task Force is the premier internet standards organization where they focus on the global network. Whereas something like Ethernet or Wi Fi helps you make a single connection. When you go to the IETF, we're thinking about how do we connect things across the entire network, multiple hops. I have to go through many different networks to get there. Then we're going to start defining protocols that run all the way across. The IETF covers the network layer, the transport layer, and some of those application layers like web and email and so on. And you have other standards organizations doing some of those things as well. So there's a World Wide Web Consortium called the W3C where they're doing lots of web standards, things like HTML, things like cascading style sheets, CSS, that help you author websites, those kinds of things. And that provide the interfaces that a browser needs in order to to find websites. Those things are done in a different organization altogether called the the Worldwide um, Web Consortium. So there's kind of this constellation of standards organizations and they have pretty solid boundaries and they all kind of work together and talk to each other but they sort of stay within their um, area of expertise. And then if we work on something inside, say the IETF, and we start to say, oh, this is really going to have an impact on Wi-Fi, or we really need to understand if someone's connecting to the internet over Wi-Fi, what do we do about that? Then we will go to that other standards organization for Wi-Fi. It's called the IEEE. We will ask them, hey, we need a standard for this, or can you explain to us how does this actually work? And so the standards organizations kind of work together at those boundaries to make sure that when you pick up your your phone or your laptop, that everything just works. (laughs) And it's all kind of seamless at those borders.
1: Something we spoke about as regards to the importance of the standards, how are standards created, adopted? How do they evolve? A typical standards
0: process involves interested parties coming together early on. So usually this is engineers and architects who work for tech companies, for network operators. You have academics who will join. You have researchers. You might have members of civil society. You might have government agency staff or government researchers. All these different people kind of come together and just start to brainstorm about a particular problem that we're seeing in engineering the network. People might say, man, we're, we're suffering a lot of attacks from, let's say, they, they call them distributed denial of service attacks, where you have these malicious actors on the internet and they're sending like a ton of traffic to our websites. And one thing that would make it easier is if we could exchange information about these attacks in a standardized way. Someone will state a problem like this, like, wouldn't it be nice if we had a standard for how we exchange this information? And then everybody else who's interested, like people who suffer from these attacks, people who might be able to consume this information or send it, start to get together and say, well, how should we really, how should we design this thing? And so it's like a very collaborative process. You will have companies that have their own proprietary ways of doing these things. And they will think about making a contribution to the, the standard to say like, well, here's how we do it and try to get the way that they do it to be the standardized way, because then they don't have to change anything in in what they've already built. So there there can be some tension and tussle there. And then there's like a long iteration process. So we might get to a first draft of the standard and then you put it out for review and then you can have people reviewing it. Usually within the Internet Engineering Task Force, there's about 120 working groups that are each pretty narrowly focused on a specific topic. So you'll have like this long process in the working group where you have many reviews and revisions for some, especially for software-based standards, you will start to have companies that start to develop implementations of the standard in parallel with the development of the standard itself, and then you can test it out. For example, I was talking about some of these um, standards that we use for congestion control and performance optimization on the internet. We've had, as you know, in recent times, 15 or 20 independent implementations of the standards when they're in draft. And then we have interoperability testing events where we go and see which features of the standard are working. (laughs) Like, is this thing actually controlling the congestion the way that we thought it would? And so you actually build this on the network and you test it out as you find deficiencies or improvements, you feed those back into the written standard and it continues to evolve. And then eventually, usually there's like a widespread call for comment, a sort of last call. Anybody who's interested, sometimes these are public in the IETF, everything is public and anybody can come and comment on the standards before it gets finalized. And once all of those comments have been incorporated or addressed, then there's a final publication step where everything is aligned and formatting and then the references are all checked and all of that. And then publish a standard on the internet and people can go adopt it and implement it.
1: And you spoke a bit about IETF. You mentioned it has some particular charter and mandate. How does that compare to other standard organizations, which may be there. How did IETF even came to being? Give us more color on this.
0: The IETF actually grew out of a government research task force, which was being funded through DARPA, I think, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency out of the Department of Defense in the United States. So they had a research task force that was trying to unify many different people in government research agencies and in universities who were all working on trying to build this network for the DOD. I think it was called the Gateway Protocol Task Force or something. It had some other name. This group of folks had been meeting on some regular basis, and they got together in January of 1986 and decided to convert this task force into what is now the Internet Engineering Task Force. It started to accrue more interest from other stakeholders outside of government and research, and continued still meets three times a year, but there's a lot of activity in between the meetings to develop the standards. So that's kind of how the the IETF got going. And and the the mission of the IETF is actually very simple. It's to make the internet work better. That's it. So as I said, it's really super focused on solving engineering problems within that part of the protocol stack that's all about global interconnectivity between networked devices, and is very focused on first of all, alignment with the existing internet architecture at this point. So that meeting was in 1986. Work had even preceded that, right? But we have more than 30 years of experience with internet standards and standardization and deployment. So we have a very large deployed base of devices and software, some of which are not that easy to upgrade. And so there's a lot of focus on maintaining consistency and coherency with what we already have deployed out there so that nothing breaks. So that's kind of the realm that the IETF lives in. But as I said, there's the IEEE, which is focused on wireless technologies, or I, what we call IEEE 802, which is where they standardize the technologies that comprise Wi-Fi. You have 3GPP, which is standardizing the cellular wireless technologies, 3G, 4G, 5G, and so on. And then you have other kinds of organizations that are much more of these sort of, they're much more traditional international kind of government-based standards organizations that you may have heard of, like ISO, um, the International Standards Organization, right? So ISO standardizes all kinds of things, not just related to network technologies, but many, many different things. It operates more on the basis of countries and governments coming together and trying to figure out what is it that they want standardized or what is it that they want published as a standard so that it can be referenced in regulation and so on. The IETF is much more of a a kind of market-driven, private sector-led organization by comparison. But you have things going on in ISO that are related to things going on in the IETF. Same for the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, which historically standardized technologies for the telephone network. So that's another kind of adjacent Organization, but is also it's very government heavy, treaty based
1: kind of organization, very different from the IETF. And this segues very well into the role of international competition or even collaboration in creating standards. What's your lens on that?
0: So, this is super important. And again, just like one of the I think the really fascinating, unique, important aspects of the internet itself is that it truly is like a global collaboration. So if, when you go to these meetings of the IETF or some of the other standards organizations, there's people from all over the world. There's people from you know, more than hundred countries who attend most IETF meetings. And who truly collaborate and form strong, lifelong relationships where they are, over the the course of the technology's history, continuing to work together to develop new ideas, to design uh, new solutions, and so on. I've had the opportunity to work with people from every region of the world very closely on these things. And that's important in a globalized economy because as companies who want to be able to create products that they can sell across the world. If you have global standards and you have people from all over the world reflecting the requirements of their locales, that makes the standards stronger. It allows us to kind of break down those boundaries and open markets for companies that are outside their own local jurisdiction.
2: Going back a little bit to that evolution of these technical standards, maybe give us a little bit of a better sense on how these technical standards evolve and specifically with respect to decision-making. So one would assume that not all voices are weighted equally (laughs) in this process. And there's a lot of soft power as well that someone from afar might assume goes into all this stuff. So maybe talk about the decision-making process on which new standards should be adopted. Is it more of a consensus? driven or 50% plus, let's put our hands up in the air and vote, or are certain parties weighted more than others in decisions? And does that vary depending on the circumstances and so forth?
0: Yeah, very good questions. Not every standards organization works the same way, but most of them do strive to operate on the basis of consensus and to avoid voting. Inside the IETF, there's actually no voting at all. Like there's never any votes that are taken. And the IETF has no membership either. It's a very, very open organization. So anybody can join. There's no membership. And because there's no membership, there really can't be any voting because you can't count like who whose vote would count, right? But there are ways of determining consensus. And actually, just as an aside, I don't know if anybody has told you about the humming. Have you guys talked to anybody about the humming in the IETF? Okay. So it's been trickier because of the pandemic and they haven't been having meetings, but you can imagine if we go to pre-pandemic times for the, the decades before that, at a standards meeting, you got like about a thousand, fifteen hundred 1500 people attending. In any given working group meeting, you might have a hundred people or 200 people in the room. And sometimes you get to the point where you just have a sticky, thorny question. You've had a lot of debate and the chair of the meeting will just want to get a sense of the room to say, well, where do we think we really are on this question? And so they will call for a hum, which is actually a Quaker tradition, is my understanding, because we don't vote. We don't want to put our hand up. So instead we hum and the chair will say, okay, everybody who's in favor of this proposal, please hum now. And you you start to hear it like, "Mm," you know, in the room. And then they'll say, everybody who is not in favor of this proposal, please hum now. And you'll hear whatever you hear. And sometimes you can really hear a big difference, right? You might've had like, an hour of debate about something, people going back and forth. But when we take the hum, everybody's on one side, except for like two people or something. I mean, you don't really know the number. This is just like an illustration. It's not like a final consensus, but it's a way of understanding where are we in this process. And it provides some anonymity. That's the other nice thing about humming is like, if my boss is on the other side of the room, he won't know how I voted one way or the other, because we didn't vote. We just took a hum. That was a a short aside about humming. And we tried to replicate it in the online context, not actually with audio, because you can't, it doesn't work with audio, but with an interface in the web meeting to try and test it. And nothing, nothing compares to being in person and humming. But yeah, as you say, so we try to come to consensus other ways. There is certainly some amount of, you know, latent positioning and things happening in the background to try and change people's minds or convince them of a certain outcome. And I would say through the internet's history has been that the larger vendors, the companies that are most invested in having a standard look a certain way, certainly have a lot of weight. That doesn't mean that they always win. They definitely do not always win, but people really listen to what they have to say, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to put this the standard into the market. I would say more recently, what carries a lot of weight is data and test results. You now have very large cloud platforms. You can test these things out on an almost internet-wide scale in some cases. People who come and say, look, we ran this giant test, and here's what we found. Here's what's working. Here's what's broken. Here's what we think should be fixed. That carries a lot of weight now. Because at the end of the day, we all want to make things that work and that advance the ball. It's not just a beauty contest. I think increasingly, we're seeing that kind of data-driven, metrics-driven, test-driven decision-making in more and more standards, especially the more that they can be implemented in software. You can't do this with a giant piece of equipment that needs specialized chips and so on. You're not going to build it just to test it out and show people that it was working or not working. It's too expensive. But for things that are more in software, that's definitely a big trend. And yeah, it's kind of It's sort of like a political process. I mean, people will go around in the background and try to convince you to to take a particular position and and so on. There's a bunch of that that happens. But I think, especially in the IETF, for the most part, at the end of the day, we decide on the basis of the technical merit of what has been offered and who can demonstrate that the trade-offs that they are suggesting are the right ones, as opposed to politics or business interest.
2: Really, really helpful lens. And of course, you have probably one of the best vantage points. If you think about the importance of the internet and how important it is in setting kind of the right standards, very few people know much about how it works. People know, I think, decently well how things work in Congress, but probably very (laughs) little about how this stuff works. So, illuminating. Thank you. Let's shift gears, talk about policy regulation, kind of managing the internet and its impact from a regulatory legal point of view. And we know this is something that you focus on. And one way to start this conversation might be just to ask you how you think about the relationship between technology and democracy, because we know you've spent some time in this area.
0: These days, I feel like it's an everything relationship. <laughs> like you really don't have one without the other in either direction. That might seem more true today than ever, but I think it's actually just always been true because democracy is really about governance by the people. And in order to govern by the people, the people need to be informed and they need to be able to organize and hold their leaders to account. In a way, technology just changes the mechanisms that they have for doing all of those things. And that was true of the printing press. And it was true of consumer grade photography. And it's true of the internet. So I think it always kind of feels special right now, but I think it actually probably isn't that special. I think the printing press probably revolutionized people's understanding of democracy and and the internet is doing the same thing. I think they they really don't exist without one another. And the task is to figure out how you can harness technology to safeguard democracy, I think in a better way than we have been doing.
1: Extending that to what have you learned about legislation and policy making of technology?
0: So I think for legislation specifically, there are very few bites at the apple. And that's been true for a while, but it's only getting worse in a way. If you think about the legislative framework that underpins the internet in the US, at least a lot of it is very old. The statute that governs government access to stored communications was passed in 1986 just think about what stored communications looked like then compared to what they look like now. And literally that's the law that government agents are using to explain whether they need to get access to your emails or not. So the windows are very narrow and it's the same for telecom. The last time the telecommunications regulatory framework was updated was in 1996, 25 years ago. So those broad-based pieces of legislation, they just don't come around very often. And the windows of opportunity to actually influence things and and make changes from a legislative perspective are very, very narrow. As a result, you're kind of, you're dealing with a lot of new challenges that arise based on new products and services and new ways of organizing information and, and people online through Lots of other mechanisms that don't have anything to do with legislation might have, it might be the courts, it might be a lot of it is just corporate policy, but you can't really rely on these legislative attempts at things because they very infrequently succeed and they don't come around very often. The other thing I feel like having spent 15 years working in this space that I didn't appreciate at the beginning is that policymakers have so many different demands on them They're supposed to be improving the economy and the public health and the climate and serving the underserved and furthering the cause of justice and many things, which if you're working on internet privacy or something, they don't seem like they are related. But I think that the trick is to try to fit your issue into that set of things that is motivating them. When I first started working on technology policy, I knew what my objective and my argument was, but I was terrible at seeing it from their perspective and putting myself in their shoes of these hundred other things that they have going on. Why should they care about this today? And I think there's been quite a a big shift in how people who work in technology policy have come to that. And so now, for example, you see a very strong union between civil liberties and civil rights So a lot of people who used to work on internet privacy have kind of pivoted to work on civil rights because there actually is a privacy issue embedded at the center of the the civil rights debate. So anyway, things like that, I think are, are interesting to keep in mind in terms of framing the issues in a way that is compelling for the challenges that policymakers feel most viscerally. And a lot of those challenges are not directly internet policy related, but that you don't have to talk about that. You can just talk about why it's important to them.
2: Do you have any view on or have you acquired any learnings around policymaking for emerging technologies? So really nascent technologies versus, let's say, the internet, which I guess in the grand scheme of things is somewhat nascent if you compare it to the existence of human beings, which have been around for a lot longer than the internet. But you know, maybe think about technologies that have been around for a couple of years or a decade or so. What should be really consider for emerging technologies from a policymaking point of view?
0: From a regulatory perspective, the good thing is that regulation is super slow. (laughs) It takes forever for regulatory authorities to realize that there's something for them to do to address a new technology that has entered into society. And I think that's, for the most part, that's actually a good thing because the main government policymakers and bureaucrats are not good at choosing what the next great technology should be. Innovators and entrepreneurs and the market is pretty good at that with some caveats. So I think for emerging technologies, the main hard question is, back to this incentives, where do you direct research money? Where do you direct grant money and public support to try to ensure that the the best new technologies flourish? You can see this in the current debates. It's odd to me that often in one breath, people talk about AI, quantum, and 5G. I'm like, what these things are, what are you talking about? They're they not really, they have no relationship that you can discern other than that they're new things that people are talking about, but they're not even at the same level of newness. I find that to be kind of strange. And I think the underlying really hard question there is how much money do you put into the development of each of them or the other ones that you're considering? Or do you make generic funds available for research and, and just hope that that you get the best result? So from an emerging technologies perspective, I think that's the real job of policy is to figure out the best way to let technologies that are going to help solve societal problems flourish. And that's very hard to do because what rubric do you use to, to decide?
1: It's not obvious. And is there something unique about legislation and policy making for internet specifically?
0: I would say so. I mean, there's a real difficulty because a lot of policy likes to build on precedent. So you start to have this internet thing and there's questions about how are we going to regulate it? And we're like, okay, well, let's go look at whatever the previous analogy was. Well, none of the previous analogies are very good. Is the internet like the phone network? Well, in some ways it's like the phone network, but in some ways it's really different. Is it like the news media? Uh, Yes and no. Is it like the town square? Uh, Yes and no. Is it like a retail marketplace? Uh, Yes and no. This is what I have found working in, especially in internet specific policy, is that there's always this instinct to go find the comparison point. We did it this way for print newspapers, so we can do it this way for the internet. And the difficulty with the internet comes back to what we talked about at the very very beginning. It's very general purpose. So it is both this speech-bearing medium where anybody can speak. And in the U.S., we have this very strong First Amendment. And so that carries a certain set of obligations and limits on what you can do. But it's also this engine for commerce. And the whole economy is now built on the thing. That's not a technology that has any analog. In history. That's what I think is, is unique in thinking about internet-wide policy is that you try to borrow things from here and there, but none of them feels like a very comfortable fit because the internet is so many things at once. And that creates a challenge. The other thing I would say kind of getting out of just the U.S. framework is that obviously the internet is very much designed to be in tension with national jurisdictions. We have a global internet, but we don't have a global government nor do we want one. I think that is a constant source of friction in terms of the inherent challenges that the internet poses to national sovereignty and to, again, to those modes that policymakers have of thinking about how they regulate or how they legislate. All of those are within the bounds of their own nation. Obviously, there's some activity with internet governmental organizations, but that's also not a great fit for something like the internet, which is, again, like a private sector driven institution. So that's, I think, another thing that's kind of unique about the internet when it comes to technology. It's, it's not the only global shared resource that we have. And so it probably needs to follow some of those models that we have for other global challenges.
1: Are there any opportunities that you see that exist from a policy perspective for the internet?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think something that I think was not well understood in the early days of the internet is the network economics And we're seeing a lot of the results of that now. Just the fact that when you have network effects and these these just outrageous economies of scale that are evident in in so many sectors that are built on top of the internet, that the markets inevitably tip and you end up with these sort of winner-takes-all kind of situations in many, many different markets on the internet. The fact that there's clearly starting to be broad international recognition for that and that there's there's a role for policymakers to play in trying to kind of rebalance that and and reintroduce more competition into some of these markets. I think that's a huge opportunity and and very important for the future of openness on the internet. We've talked a lot about open standards here, and if you have a whole internet that's dominated by a handful of companies, that openness really deteriorates very quickly because you start to have to cede ground to this small set of companies that controls everything that's probably the biggest opportunity that i see is that there's so much interest in in trying to rebalance in that area that i think that
1: could be that could kind of lay a good foundation for the next phase of the internet taking the technology standard lens and policy making lens i think you alluded to this are they at odds creating a standard versus creating a policy and what may exist already
0: i would say usually not I don't think they're usually at odds. So a lot of times they work together. So you'll have policies that directly reference open standards or that need them to do so. So you can think of the 911 system, emergency calling, all of that. It only works because there are standardized ways of locating your phone and so on. But you have a whole regulatory framework around that, which is premised on the existence of those standards. There's lots of lots of examples of that where the two really work together. There are times when they are more in tension. And I think this kind of gets back to the sovereignty point where you have you know nations that want to govern the internet in their own jurisdiction in a certain way and want to try to erect those barriers around their own network. And that can be very much in tension with global standards efforts like the ones that happen in the IETF.
1: About digital privacy, The first thing would be to start with, when we think about privacy, what are the privacy considerations in the digital versus the non-digital world?
0: I think in the digital world, what we've seen is that there's just an enormous opportunity to collect data and track everything about individual life. That drive appears to be sort of inexorable (laughs) that I've been working on internet privacy for a long time. And some days it feels like haven't accomplished much because (laughs) small, small gains that are made are quickly overcome by new and different ways that organizations find to, to collect more data about you. So that's, I think kind of requires a paradigm shift really to fix. And that's, I think, not really as true in in brick and mortar kind of situations, right? There's just, you don't have as much of an opportunity to track people and collect their information. And so it's a little bit easier of a problem to grapple with than it is in the online context.
2: A continuation of that, which goes maybe to the root of some of the stuff, which is why is privacy important? I mean, you worked on it for a long time. What's your lens on why it actually matters?
0: I think it's pretty fundamental to individual liberty. I think that It's hard to feel completely free if you feel like you're being surveilled. And I think that's true in a corporate context as much as it is in a government context, just given the institutions that we have today and how much data goes back and forth and and how much the shape of our lives are mediated through platforms that are provided by corporate actors. I feel like it's not that everybody must choose to have a sort of surveillance-free life, But I think that should be an option for everyone. I think being able to express yourself and have private conversation and creativity and novel thought, those are all premised on having the opportunity to do that in a private space. And those those spaces have really eroded over the life of the internet.
2: Yeah. In terms of a physical world, think about this as a non-digital world. The notion of privacy is fairly well understood in the US in terms of physical privacy, right? Why do you think there hasn't been a one-to-one correlation between physical and and digital? Is it because it's just an entirely new paradigm and it's very different? Or because enforcement hasn't been as easy as it is perhaps in a physical world? Why do you think things are so different in the digital world in terms of the way consensus is currently established?
0: I think there's probably two things. One is what I mentioned before, the opportunity for data collection is so massive and seamless and easy. If you're walking down the street and trying to take pictures of people in order to create a database of faces, you're just, the, the scale of that is is basically invisible when you compare it to scraping photos off a social network, right? It's just like, it's not even worth trying. That's your objective is to collect pictures of faces, you would never, ever just walk down the street and do it. (laughs) So I think that's part of it is just that the ease with which data can be collected online puts you in a whole different realm when you start to think about, well, what, what should we do about it from a privacy perspective? The other thing though, is that so much of it is invisible to the individual. If somebody's peeping in your house or violating your physical privacy in some way, you probably know about it because you were there. You are experiencing it physically, right? That's again, almost the complete opposite of how it is online. Nobody understands what, how much data is being collected about them. I don't care how many cookie pop-ups I get on my phone because we have European data protection law. Nobody understands the vast quantities of information that are collected and stored about every aspect of their lives. Therefore, it's not really actionable. You can't be outraged every time someone violates your privacy on the internet because you just live in a constant state of outrage. That's why it's hidden from you. I think those two things really make a big difference between the physical world and the online world.
2: Is there anything else you would highlight that you've, I guess, learned is really hard about digital privacy or privacy in the digital world to sort of accomplish perhaps your vision for digital privacy? What's hard, do you think, to move in that direction?
0: I think the hardest thing is that building businesses on the basis of data has proved to be more lucrative than anything else in human history and safeguarding privacy requires changing those business models. It literally requires some people somewhere are going to make a lot less money if we institute true privacy rights, not privacy rights that are based on me clicking OK to consent to something but actual limitations on what can be done with data and what can be collected. It will change the nature of the digital economy in serious ways. My personal view is that that should happen. That needs to happen for the good of humanity. But that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, I think.
1: Are there any projects which you've been involved with, which are trying to at least put some equality, if you will, or the balance towards privacy.
0: Yeah, so I am on the board of the TOR project. TOR is a wonderful anonymity and anti-censorship technology, which is used by millions of people around the world so that they can access the internet in a private way, especially in places where the things that they are doing might create suspicion or just anybody who needs feels the need for anonymous communication. So yeah, I think it's a great initiative. I think scaling it to the scope or scale of the population at large is a wonderful moonshot kind of goal. And I'm happy to be on the board and helping with that.
2: Yeah, we're fans. We're definitely fans of that tour project. So this is our outro section, which is very much kind of rapid fire, quick, quick answers. What motivates you?
0: So I think we're talking a lot about the internet. So I'll just stick with that. I think the internet is like a super revolutionary technology. And every day, it amazes me the fact that I get to work on it and help it stick around and do great things. That's what motivates me.
1: Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear?
0: So sticking with the theme, I will say there's a campaign out there called Ban Surveillance Advertising. I am definitely on that bandwagon. I would ban surveillance advertising, even if it's a non-consensus view.
2: What or who has had the most impact on your thinking career or life?
0: That title goes to my dad, who was a staunch consumer advocate working in, not a little bit in internet policy, but in lots of other areas of policy. He's been a huge inspiration and supporter of mine as well.
1: What are you currently reading?
0: So I just finished a great book called Factfulness by Hans Rosling, which is about reframing the way that people who live in the West think about improvements in developing countries over time. Uh, it's a really great book. If you need something that has an optimistic bent, I recommend Factfulness.
2: Yeah, he's a fairly known Swede. I'm originally from Sweden. Yes. Um, I have the book in my bookshelf here. (laughs) Uh, That's a good one. Last one, who are your favorite writers or podcasters?
0: I would say for fiction writers, my favorite is Ken Kesey. Uh, I'm a big fan of Sometimes a Great Notions. Probably my favorite book. I also read most of what Charlie Wartzel writes. He used to work for the New York Times and is now doing a Substack type thing. He writes great stuff about all of this social networking and what is the internet doing to democracy kind of stuff. And then from podcasts, I'm a big fan of the hang up and listen podcast from slate. It's actually a podcast about sports. I don't watch any professional sports, but I love this podcast. And I just started, I think, late to the party, Dan Carlin's hardcore history, which is amazing.
1: We hope you enjoyed the conversation for more information and latest updates visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization company or management they may be associated with and thank you for listening